My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. We are going to explain a huge scandal in depth today. Some parts of it will be a little complicated. At its core, though, this scandal is not complicated at all. Here, I'll show you. In 2018, this was the man who would become Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, campaigning for the job. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear, people don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. And now, Two days ago, this was Ontario's Auditor General summarizing a report on the Ford government doing the exact opposite of what you just heard Doug Ford promise. Our review of the procedures used to amend the Greenbelt boundary in 2022 raises serious concerns about the exercise used, the way in which standard information gathering and decision-making protocols were sidelined or abandoned, and how changes to the Greenbelt boundaries were unnecessarily rushed through. That's really it, in a nutshell. But once you crack open that shell, there are all sorts of details in this report that illustrate just how Ontario's most treasured, protected environmental resource was chopped up and handed over to developers who stand to make billions of dollars. So what exactly happened here? Who did what and when? And who, if anyone, will face consequences for it? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Fatma Syed is an Ontario reporter at the Narwhal. She, as well as her colleague Emma McIntosh, have been uh, the lead reporters, I think it's fair to say, breaking the Greenbelt story. Hello, Fatma. Hi, Jordan. I think the last time both of us were on the show together, we were talking about the Greenbelt. And we were always wondering what was going to come of any sort of reporter investigation. Now we have a little bit of an answer to that. I want to start, though, for people who aren't in Ontario or people who may not have been following this story closely and just briefly zoom way, way, way out before we get to uh, the big new developments. What is the Greenbelt? And what is the provincial government of Ontario attempting to do with it? So the Greenbelt is Ontario's pride and joy. It is a massive protected area where hundreds of species uh, live, where we get our food, where we go for hikes. It's a sprawling two million acres of beautiful natural environment that stretches all the way from the greater Toronto area to the Niagara Escarpment. It's, it's literally bigger than Prince Edward Island. And over the years, because it was created through political mechanism, it has often found its way into the political football game. Because as, you know, the Ontario population grows and the needs of it grows, you kind of need more land to do anything. That is sort of the nature of society. And when you need more land, 
you look around you and you see the green belt and you say, okay, well, should we build there? And for a long time, the answer was no. For a long time, everyone said that no, especially as the climate change worsens and its impacts worsens and the need for the natural environment to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change increased, we wanted to protect this incredible protected green space that we created. But the Ford government came into power in 2018. And one of the first things Doug Ford said on the campaign trail was he's going to open the green belt. He received a lot of backlash for it. Mm-hmm. And the next day he said he promised to never, ever open the green belt again. And throughout the years that this government has been in power, we have heard repeatedly that the green belt will not be touched. It will not be opened. It will not be built on. Right. Until November 2022, <laughs> when the Ford government drops a bombshell and says, we're going to open up 15 parcels of the green belt and we're going to allow construction on them. And the first question, of course, on everyone's mind was, huh? But you said you wouldn't. What is their rationale for doing it? You mentioned Ontario's growing. They're just saying this is the land we need? That is their rationale. (laughs) That's literally their rationale, that we are, are facing rapid population growth fueled by immigration. And as more newcomers come to Ontario, they need houses And so do Ontarians, because we are in a housing crisis. Mm -hmm. The government likes to say housing prices are completely unaffordable right now. And a lot of that has been linked to a shortage of housing supply. So this government has taken upon itself to increase that supply by making more land available. And some of that land, in fact, most of that land that they made available is in the Greenbelt. So the first question was, huh? The second question was, why these parcels of land specifically? How did you pick these specific pockets of Greenbelt land? You know, there are some in the township of King, some in York Region, some in the city of Hamilton. They're kind of like, you know, spread apart in, in various pockets of prime farmland and green spaces. Okay, so, so far, this is a case of kind of typical politician broken promises, a should they or shouldn't they debate about priorities in terms of the environment versus housing and stuff you could call, listen, uh, loosely relatively normal in the operation of political football, like you explained. Tell me about those parcels of land. Where does the scandal come in? So this is the thing. Literally days after the government's announcement was made public, my colleague, Emma McIntosh, uh, our OG queen, Ontario's Greenbelt, partnered up with reporters at The Star and quickly tried to track down who were the owners of these land and what were their, their ties to the progressive conservatives of Ontario. And what they discovered is much of the land that had been open to development was owned by developers who had donated to the progressive conservatives in their election bid. Many of them had ties to the progressive government. Some of the employees of these development companies were former staffers in the government Hmm. or lobbied the government. And so we suddenly had this, you know, in the movies when you you have all this evidence and you pin it on the board and you start like, you know, tying thread and trying to figure out how everything links together and how we got here. We suddenly had a board where we could see that there were links, but we still had a lot of questions. 
who went to whom? Did the government tell the developers this was going to happen? Because the developers are set to profit when when their lands are going to be developed on. You know, how did this actually come about? And everybody who is familiar with the meme right now is picturing uh, you and Emma with uh, that board with all the strings on it, trying to tell <laughs> us exactly what's going on. It's a very complicated and complex story, and it had a lot of question marks. Yes, until Wednesday, Ontario's Auditor General released a report on all the things you guys were digging into. And maybe before we get deep into exactly what it said, what role does the Auditor General play? What is her mandate? What kind of power does she have in this situation? Like, what is this report we're talking about? So the Auditor General is a watchdog. You know, she is an accountability office. Her job is is to closely examine and investigate and scrutinize any government policy decision that can have a financial or environmental impact on Ontario. And her office gets requests from opposition leaders, from members of the public on what they'd like her to investigate. Hmm. And as you can imagine, when this Greenbelt decision was released, her office was flooded with requests. Because this is a financial decision as well as a land use decision as well as a government policy decision, right? I think it's fair to say that it's the most controversial political decision in Ontario in quite some time. Agreed. Completely. And 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 I think it was um, very incumbent on, on her to, to investigate, and she did. It is important to know, though, that her office does not have any teeth. She cannot provide any recourse, mm-hmm. any punishment, any order to change or reverse, you know, she cannot offer actions. She can offer recommendations. And whether the government takes those recommendations or not are entirely within their choice. This Auditor General that we have um, at present, her name is Bonnie Lissick. She's held the office for several years now, and her mandate is ending on September 2nd. So her investigation into the Greenbelt sales and the report that she put out this week is actually her very last action in in this office. Going out with a bang. Literally. (laughs) This report comes out Wednesday. As we mentioned, uh, Emma McIntosh, yourself, uh, people you're working with at The Star, have done a ton of this digging and are staring at this board with this thread. What connections get made with this report? What did you learn? How were you feeling as you read it? The thing is, when, when a government policy decision comes out, you know what it says. What you don't know is who created it, why they created it, how they created it, and when they created it. And that's all important because we live at a time when governments are not necessarily always transparent with the public. And those things are important to know when government when government policy decisions will impact so many aspects of your life, which in this case it does. And this report completely and entirely dismantled and debunked the narrative the government put out about how these pockets of Greenbelt land were open to development. How was the government saying it happened versus how the report said it happened? For months, we've heard the government say that these parcels of land were selected by public servants 
that no one was tipped off, no developer was tipped off in advance, that there were no close ties to the developers, and everything was done above board. This report finds the exact opposite. It finds that it was, in fact, a senior non-elected political staffer that had the power to set up a six-person covert team of public servants who were called the Greenbelt Project Team, by the way, can, you know, talk about a boring name for a covert operation. And that team was tasked with assessing whether 22 sites that were hand-delivered by this senior political staffer to them could be open to development. The report also says that several of the sites that this, this political staffer gave the team for assessment came directly from developers. Hmm. That there were that he went to an a developer event and there were developers there that handed him packages with all the information about the sites that they wanted removed from the green belt. That law firms representing the developers directly emailed this political staffer asking for a certain site to be removed. That when the team asked for more information on any of the sites, this senior political staffer contacted the developers directly and brought the team back five USB keys full of information from said development companies about the sites. Not only that, but this senior political staffer made this team, as well as anyone who had knowledge of this process, sign confidentiality agreements so they could not talk to anyone about it. Not only that, but the assessment criteria by which this team assessed whether a site could be open for development was amended every time they brought up a concern. If the team went to the chief of staff and said that, hey, certain some of these sites don't have the infrastructure, you know, the sewage pipes and electricity grids and utilities that you need to build housing on it, he said, forget infrastructure costs. Don't consider that. When they said, hey, some of these sites are prime agricultural land that we could grow on, he said, ignore agricultural and environmental considerations. When they said that some of these sites are too far from you know, development. And if you build on them, it would create very isolated housing complexes, which aren't sustainable. He said, let's expand the boundary. This person, this non-elected person had the power to basically shape land use. And somehow we are meant to believe that neither his boss, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, nor his boss's boss, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, had any knowledge what he was up to. When you put it like that, Fatima, it sounds bad. It is bad. It is deeply concerning. It is the stuff that I would expect to see on TV and movies. Mm -hmm. The sheer extent of, of oblivion on the parts of the people that have been elected by the public of Ontario to make decisions that impact the environment around them is very, very troubling. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. 
It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. How much money and land are we talking about here? Give us a sense of the scale of the deals that went down. According to the Auditor General's report, 92% of the Greenbelt lands that have been open to development are owned by two developers who are collectively set to see an $8.3 billion property value increase, if not more. So to put that in context, the decisions of a small group of non-elected people were able to deliver massive profits to two already very wealthy, very powerful developers in Ontario. You mentioned that both the premier and the minister have denied making these decisions. Tell me about the government's response to this report on Wednesday. What did they say? As I mentioned, you know, the details included here are deeply troubling, as you put it. How do they defend this and or what do they promise to do about it? You know, from a political crisis management perspective, Jordan, which I know sounds like a very nerdy way to start this answer, but it's true. From that perspective, the premier and the minister did a great job because they stayed on message. Every answer they got about the report, about the wrongdoings highlighted in the report, they always brought it back to, but we're building housing. But we're building housing because Ontario is getting more immigrants and newcomers and refugees and our population is growing. And I have met so many young people who can't afford a condo and we're building housing for them. Right. Every answer. The only admission that we received yesterday is maybe we move too fast and we need to fix the process. How they'll do that, I don't know. The Auditor General made 15 recommendations on how they could. They say they've accepted 14 out of 15. The one recommendation they did not accept is to reevaluate the decision to open these 15 parcels of Greenbelt lands because the process has now been conclusively found to be biased towards developers and deeply, deeply flawed. But the government is steadfast in its decision to open these parcels of land because it will build more housing which is even more troubling when you remember that the Auditor General is just the latest authority in Ontario to find in her report that the Greenbelt did not need to be opened for more housing to be built in Ontario. Explain that part, because that's a big part of the government's message. Ontario already has enough land that is ready to be built on, that is serviced with sewage pipelines, electricity grids, utilities, emergency services, access to schools and hospitals, all the things you need to create sustainable housing communities. We have enough land of that available in this province to meet our housing targets. Targets, by the way, which are which were set by the very same government, by the Ford government, by members of the ministry who were not aware that the Greenbelt would be opened. And you can imagine that if they knew that the Greenbelt would be opened, their calculations might be a little different. 
The other really important thing to note from the Auditor General's report and also many, many reports prior to her is that the lands that have been opened up in the Greenbelt will take a long time to be ready for development. Mm -hmm. In in her report, she cites the chief planner of Durham region, which where a a lot of Greenbelt land has been open to development, who says that it will take 25 years to get that land ready for houses. Not ideal. 25 years to install all the pipes and wires. The government's timeline is 2025, Jordan. <laughs> they said that if houses aren't built on green on these lands by 2025, they'll put the lands back in the green belt, which makes me wonder what was that all for? They're saying that they're building houses, but no houses are being built. Okay, explain the 14 recommendations that they have accepted. I know you probably can't run through all of them in this time, but what has the government agreed to do in response to this report? The main finding of this Auditor General's report is that there was improper communications and promises made between non-elected political staffers and developers. And there was a lot of power given to the staffer to dictate public servants. Now, the way government runs, this is a little nerdy, but bear with me. The way government runs, it is guided by rules. There are rules on how to be a public servant. Mm -hmm. There are rules on how to be a political staffer. A lot of these rules uh, do include a language about ensuring that all communication is above board. Developers shouldn't be dictating policy, full stop. Developers should not be giving packages to chiefs of staffs that then magically turn into policy. Our elected officials should be making policies. So there is a lot of, you know, improper communications in this scenario. The government has promised to review the guidelines to better enforce them. They have promised to ask the integrity commissioner to investigate whether the chief of staff acted wrongly and improperly. And if he did, that could result in suspension and dismissal of this person who still has his job. So it's a lot of process review that they have agreed to. First, I want to thank you for walking us through all this because it's a very dense report and it's been some dense reporting. And I hope everyone has a good picture of how this started and where we've ended up right now in the middle of August. The last thing I'm hoping you can explain is what happens now and Are there still any outcomes that could induce some sort of consequences? You mentioned the Auditor General has no teeth. I believe there are still some investigations ongoing elsewhere. Like, what could come of this report still? So the report is the first thorough look at how this all happened. The Auditor General told us, reporters that she is speaking to the Ontario Provincial Police, who is also conducting their own assessment about whether an investigation needs to occur in the way the government went about this Greenbelt decision. So the OPP could be one route of recourse. The Integrity Commissioner, which I mentioned previously, is also investigating whether the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, did anything improper and wrong, and and is also now looking into his chief of staff's actions. That's another set of recourse. The thing is, and I'm not going to speak as a journalist right now, I'm going to speak as a member of the Ontario public. The frustrating thing is, I don't know where else recourse comes from. 
you know, oftentimes when you ask opposition leaders or or really anyone, like, what can the public do? All of them said, you know, well, we can't exactly say vote them out because there's no election. The government has a majority right now, which means that they can really do whatever they want to do. They have the votes. So any calls to bring back the legislature might not go heard. There are calls for the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing to resign, but that's not something that you can force. That has to come from the minister's own personal decision or the premier's decision. It feels a little futile, and I hate ending the episode on a on a on a on a downer. But on the one hand, you know it's been very validating for Emma and I at the Narwhal, who have been tracking this for months and months and months, to know that we were right that our narrative, as different as it was from the government's, was right, that this was done very improperly and not in the best interests of Ontarians, but in the best interests of developers. Right. On the other hand, we don't know what happens next. You hope that governments know what they're doing because that's what they're put in place for. You hope that governments are able to not just acknowledge any mistakes made along the way because you know, they're humans after all, and humans make mistakes, but fix them. Mm -hmm. You hope that governments genuinely know or have the ability to call on those who might know how to do very, very complex things. We're, We're living at a time of unprecedented and growing crises. And right now, after reading the Auditor General's report, I don't think I can say concretely, that I can be sure that the government of Ontario knows what it's doing. That's, I think, as good a place as any to leave it for now, I guess, Fatima. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you and Emma and your colleagues for all the work on this file. And I somehow doubt this is the last time you and I speak about this. I think I'll be back and hopefully Emma will be here too. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Jordan. Fatma Syed, Ontario reporter at the Narwhal, along with, as I mentioned, Emma McIntosh, both of whom have been on this story and will continue to be on this story, I imagine, for a while. You can read all of their work at thenarwhal.com. That was The Big Story. For more from us, including previous Greenbelt episodes, just go to thebigstorypodcast.ca, scroll down, type Greenbelt in the search box. You'll get a bunch, including Emma and Fatma. You can also find us on social media at the Big Story FPN on Twitter. You can email us. The address is hello at the Big Story and you can phone us and leave us a voicemail 416 935 5935. The Big Story Podcast is in every podcast player that we could find and that would have us. If it's in yours, which it must be if you're listening to this, please consider leaving a rating or a review or just telling a friend about this show. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and we'll talk Monday. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. 
It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.